Chapter Four, Part Two of the Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nikki Sullivan. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Four, Part Two. These considerations show how usefully the part which women take in the formation of general opinion would be modified for the better by that more enlarged instruction and practical conversancy with the things which their opinions influence that would necessarily arise from their social and political emancipation but the improvement it would work through the influence they exercise each in her own family would be still more remarkable it is often said that in the classes most exposed to temptation a man's wife and children tend to keep him honest and respectable both by the wife's direct influence and by the concern she feels for their future welfare. This may be so, and no doubt often is so, with those who are more weak than wicked. And this beneficial influence would be preserved and strengthened under equal laws. It does not depend on the woman's servitude, but is, on the contrary, diminished by the disrespect which the inferior class of men always at heart feels towards those who are subject to their power but when we ascend higher in the scale we come among a totally different set of moving forces the wife's influence tends as far as it goes to prevent the husband from falling below the common standard of approbation of the country it tends quite as strongly to hinder him from rising above it. The wife is the auxiliary of the common public opinion. A man who is married to a woman his inferior in intelligence finds her a perpetual dead weight, or, worse than a dead weight, a drag upon every aspiration of his to be better than the public opinion requires him to be. It is hardly possible for one who is in these bonds to attain exalted virtue. If he differs in his opinion from the mass, if he sees truths which have not yet been dawned upon them, or if, feeling in his heart truths which they nominally recognize, he would like to act up to those truths more conscientiously than the generality of mankind, to all such thoughts and desires marriage is the heaviest of drawbacks, unless he be so fortunate as to have a wife as much above the common level as he himself is. For, in the first place, there is always some sacrifice of personal interest required, either of social consequence or of pecuniary means, perhaps the risk even of the means of subsistence. These sacrifices and risks he may be willing to encounter for himself, but he will pause before he imposes them on his family. And his family, in this case, means his wife and daughters, for he always hopes that his sons will feel as he feels himself, and that what he can do without, they will do without, willingly, is the same cause." But his daughters, their marriage may depend on it, and his wife, who is unable to enter into or understand the objects for which these sacrifices are made, who, if she thought them worthy any sacrifice, would think so on trust and solely for his sake, who could participate in none of the enthusiasm or self-approbation he himself may feel 
while the things which he is disposed to sacrifice are all in all to her will not the best and most selfish man hesitate the longest before bringing on her this consequence if it be not the comforts of life but only social consideration that is at stake the burthen upon his conscience and feelings is still very severe whoever has a wife and children has given hostages to mrs grundy the approbation of that potentiate may be a matter of indifference to him but it is of greatest importance to his wife the man himself may be above opinion or may find sufficient compensation in the opinion of those of his own way of thinking but to the women connected with him he can offer no compensation the almost invariable tendency of the wife to place her influence in the same scale with social consideration is sometimes made a reproach to women and represented as a peculiar trait of feebleness and childishness of character in them surely with great injustice society makes the whole life of a woman in the easy classes a continued self-sacrifice it exacts from her an unremitting restraint of the whole of her natural inclinations and the sole return it makes to her for what often deserves the name of a martyrdom is consideration her consideration is inseparably connected with that of her husband and after paying the full price of it she finds that she is to lose it for no reason of which she can feel the cogency she has sacrificed her whole life to it and her husband will not sacrifice it to a whim a freak an eccentricity something not recognized or allowed for by the world in which the world will agree with her in thinking a folly if it thinks no worse the dilemma is hardest upon that very meritorious class of men who without possessing talents which qualify them to make a figure among those whom they agree in opinion hold their opinion from conviction and feel bound in honour and conscience to serve it by making profession of their belief and giving their time labor and means to anything undertaken in its behalf the worst case of all is when such men happen to be of a rank and position which of itself neither gives them nor excludes them from what is considered the best society when their admission to it depends mainly on what is thought of them personally and however unexceptionable their breeding and habits their being identified with opinions and public conduct unacceptable to those who give the tone of society would operate as an effectual exclusion many a woman flatters herself nine times out of ten quite erroneously that nothing prevents her and her husband from moving in the highest society of her neighbourhood society in which others well known to her and in the same class of life mix freely except that her husband is unfortunately a dissenter or has the reputation of mingling in low radical politics that is she thinks which hinders george from getting a commission or a place caroline from making an advantageous match and prevents her and her husband from obtaining invitations perhaps honors which for aught she sees they are as well entitled to as some folks with such an influence in every house either exerted actively 
or operating all the more powerfully for not being asserted is it any wonder that people in general are kept down in that mediocrity of respectability which is becoming a marked characteristic of modern times there is another very injurious aspect in which the effect not of women's disabilities directly but of the broad line of difference which those disabilities create between the education and character of a woman and that of a man requires to be considered nothing can be more unfavorable to that union of thoughts and inclinations which is the ideal of married life intimate society between people radically dissimilar to one another is an idle dream unlikeness may attract but it is likeness which retains and in proportion to the likeness is the sustainability of the individuals to give each other a happy life while women are so unlike men it is not wonderful that selfish men should feel the need of arbitrary power in their own hands to arrest in limina the lifelong conflict of inclinations by deciding every question on the side of their own preference when people are extremely unlike there can be no real identity of interest very often there is conscientious difference of opinion between married couple on the highest points of duty is there any reality in the marriage union where this takes place yet it is not uncommon anywhere when the woman has an earnestness of character and it is a very general case in catholic countries when she is supported in her descent by the only other authority to which she is taught to bow the priest with the usual barefacedness of power not accustomed to find itself disputed the influence of priests over women is attacked by protestant and liberal writers less for being bad in itself than because it is a rival authority to the husband and raises up a revolt against his infallibility in england similar differences occasionally exist when an evangelical wife has allied herself with a husband of a different quality but in general this source at least of dissension is got rid of by reducing the minds of women to such a nullity that they have no opinions but those of mrs grundy or those which the husband tells them to have when there is no difference of opinion differences merely of taste may distract greatly from the happiness of married life and though it may stimulate the amatory propensities of men it does not conduce to married happiness to exaggerate by differences of education whatever may be the native differences of the sexes if the married pair are well-bred and well-behaved people they tolerate each other's tastes but is mutual toleration what people look forward to when they enter into marriage these differences of inclination will naturally make their wishes different if not restrained by affection or duty as to almost all domestic questions which arise what a difference there must be in the society which the two persons will wish to frequent or be frequented by each will desire associations who share their own tastes the persons agreeable to one will be indifferent or positively disagreeable to the other 
yet there can be none who are not common to both for married people do not now live in different parts of the house and have totally different visiting lists as in the reign of louis the fifteenth they cannot help having different wishes as to the bringing up of the children each will wish to see reproduced in them their own tastes and sentiments and there is either a compromise and only a half satisfaction to either or the wife has to yield often with bitter suffering and with or without intention her occult influence continues to counterwork the husband's purposes it would of course be extreme folly to suppose that these differences of feeling and inclination only exist because women are brought up differently from men and that there would not be differences of taste under any imaginable circumstances but there is nothing beyond the mark in saying that the distinction and bringing up immensely aggravates those differences and renders them wholly inevitable while women are brought up as they are a man and a woman will but rarely find in one another a real agreement of tastes and wishes as to daily life they will generally have to give it up as hopeless and renounce the attempt to have in the immediate associate of their daily life that idem vile idem nole which is the recognized bond of any society that is really such or if the man succeeds in obtaining it he does so by choosing a woman who is so complete a nullity that she has no vili or nulle at all and is as ready to comply with one thing as another if anybody tells her to do so even this calculation is apt to fail dullness and want of spirit are not always a guarantee of the submission which is so confidently expected from them but if they were is this the ideal of marriage what in this case does the man obtain by it except an upper servant a nurse or a mistress on the contrary when each of two persons instead of being a nothing is a something when they are attached to one another and are not too much unlike to begin with the constant partaking in the same things assisted by their sympathy draws out the latent capabilities of each for being interested in the things which were at first interesting only to the other and works a gradual assimilation of the tastes and characters to one another partly by the insensible modification of each but more by a real enriching of the two natures each acquiring the tastes and capabilities of the other in addition to its own this often happens between two friends of the same sex who are much associated in their daily life and it would be a common if not the commonest case in marriage did not the totally different bringing up of the two sexes make it next to an impossibility to form a really well-assorted union were this remedied whatever differences there might still be in individual tastes there would at least be as a general rule complete unity and unanimity as to the great objects of life when the two persons both care for great objects and are a help and encouragement to each other in whatever regards these the minor matters of which their tastes may differ are not all important to them 
and there is a foundation for a solid friendship of an enduring character more likely than anything else to make it through the whole of their life a greater pleasure to each to give pleasure to the other than to receive it i have considered thus far the effects on the pleasures and benefits of the marriage union which depend on the mere unlikeness between the wife and the husband but the evil tendency is prodigiously aggravated when the unlikeness is inferiority mere unlikeness when it only means difference of good qualities may be more a benefit in the way of mutual improvement than a drawback from comfort when each emulates and desires and endeavors to acquire the other's peculiar qualities the difference does not produce diversity of interest but increased identity of it and makes each still more valuable to the other but when one is much the inferior of the two in mental ability and cultivation and is not actively attempting by the other's aid to rise to the other's level the whole influence of the connection upon the development of the superior of the two is deteriorating and still more so in a tolerably happy marriage than in an unhappy one it is not with the impunity that the superior in intellect shuts himself up with an inferior and elects that that inferior for his chosen and sole completely intimate associate any society which is not improving is deteriorating and the more so the closer and more familiar it is even a really superior man almost always begins to deteriorate when he is habitually as the phrase is king of his company and in his most habitual company the husband who has a wife inferior to him is always so when his self-satisfaction is incessantly ministered to on the other hand on the other he insensibly imbibes the modes of feeling and of looking at things which belong to a more vulgar and a more limited mind than his own this evil differs from many of those which have hitherto been dwelt on by being an increasing one the association of men and women in daily life is much closer and more complete than it ever was before men's life is more domestic formerly their pleasures and chosen occupations were among men and in men's company their wives had but a fragment of their lives at the present time the progress of civilization and the turn of opinion against the rough amusements and convivial excesses which formerly occupied most men in their hours of relaxation together with it must be said the improved tone of modern feeling as to the reciprocity of duty which binds the husband towards the wife have thrown the man very much more upon the home and its inmates for his personal and social pleasures while the kind and degree of improvement which has been made in women's education has made them in some degree capable of being his companions in ideas and mental tastes while leaving them in most cases still hopelessly inferior to him 
His desire of mental communion is thus in general satisfied by a communion from which he learns nothing. An unimproving and unstimulating companionship is substituted for what he might otherwise have been obliged to seek, the society of his equals in power and his fellows in the higher pursuits. We see, accordingly, that young men of the greatest promise generally cease to improve as soon as they marry, and, not improving, inevitably degenerate. If the wife does not push the husband forward, she always holds him back. He ceases to care for what she does not care for, he no longer desires, and ends by disliking and shunning society congenial to his former aspirations, and which would now shame his falling off from them. His higher faculties, both of mind and heart, cease to be called into activity and this change coinciding with the new and selfish interests which are created by the family after a few years he differs in no material respect from those who have never had wishes for anything but the common vanities and the common pecuniary objects what marriage may be in the case of two persons of cultivated faculties identical in opinions and purposes between whom there exists the best kind of equality similarity of powers and capabilities with reciprocal superiority in them so that each can enjoy the luxury of looking up to the other and can have alternatively the pleasure of leading and being led in the path of development i will not attempt to describe to those who can conceive it there is no need and to those who cannot it would appear the dream of an enthusiast but i maintain with the profoundest conviction that this and this only is the ideal of marriage and that all opinions customs and institutions which favor any other notion of it or turn the conceptions and aspirations connected with it into any other direction by whatever pretenses they may be colored are relics of primitive barbarism the moral regeneration of mankind will only really commence when the most fundamental of the social relations is placed under the rule of equal justice and when human beings learn to cultivate their strongest sympathy with an equal in nights and in cultivation thus far the benefits which it has appeared that the world would gain by ceasing to make sex a disqualification for privileges and a badge of subjection are social rather than individual consisting in an increase of the general fund of thinking and acting power and an improvement in the general conditions of the association of men and women but it would be a grievous understatement of the case to omit the most direct benefit of all the unspeakable gain in the private happiness to the liberated half of the species the difference to them between a life of subjection to the will of others and a life of rational freedom after the primary necessities of food and raiment freedom is the first and strongest want of human nature while mankind are lawless their desire is for lawless freedom 
when they have learnt to understand the meaning of duty and the value of reason, they incline more and more to be guided and restrained by these in the exercise of their freedom. But they do not, therefore, desire freedom less. They do not become disposed to accept the will of other people as the representative and interpreter of those guiding principles. On the contrary, the communities in which the reason has been most cultivated, and in which the idea of social duty has been most powerful, are those which have most strongly asserted the freedom of action of the individual, the liberty of each to govern his conduct by his own feelings of duty, and by such laws and social restraints as his own conscience can subscribe to. He who would rightly appreciate the worth of personal independence as an element of happiness should consider the value he himself puts on it as an ingredient of his own. There is no subject on which there is a greater habitual difference of judgment between a man judging for himself and the same man judging for other people. When he hears others complaining that they are not allowed freedom of action, that their own will has not sufficient influence in the regulation of their affairs, his inclination is to ask, what are their grievances, what positive damage they sustain, and in what respect they consider their affairs to be mismanaged? And if they fail to make out, in answer to these questions, what appears to him a sufficient case, he turns a deaf ear and regards their complaint as the fanciful querulousness of people whom nothing reasonable will satisfy. But he has a quite different standard of judgment when he is deciding for himself. Then the most unexceptionable administration of his interests by a tutor set over him does not satisfy his feelings. His personal exclusion from the deciding authority itself appears the greatest grievance of all, rendering it superfluous even to enter into the question of mismanagement. It is the same with nations. What citizen of a free country would listen to any offers of good and skillful administration in return for the abdication of freedom? even if he could believe that good and skilful administration can exist among a people ruled by a will not their own, would not the consciousness of working out their own destiny under their own moral responsibility be a compensation to his feelings for great rudeness and imperfection in the dealings of public affairs? Let him rest assured that whatever he feels on this point— women feel in fully equal degree. Whatever has been said or written, from the time of Herodotus to the present, of the ennobling influence of free government, the nerve and spring which it gives to all the faculties, the larger and higher objects which it presents to the intellect and feelings, the more unselfish public spirit, and calmer and broader views of duty that it engenders, and the generally loftier platform on which it elevates the individual as a moral, spiritual, and social being, is every particle as true of women as of men. Are these things no important part of individual happiness? Let any man call to mind what he himself felt on emerging from boyhood, from the tutelage and control of even loved and affectionate elders, 
and entering upon the responsibilities of manhood was it not like the physical effect of taking off a heavy weight or releasing him from obstructive even if not otherwise painful bonds did he not feel twice as much alive twice as much a human being as before and does he imagine that women have none of these feelings but it is a striking fact that the satisfactions and mortifications of personal pride though all in all to most men when the case is their own have less allowance made for them in the case of other people and are less listened to as a ground or justification of conduct than any other natural human feelings perhaps because men compliment them in their own case with the names of so many other qualities that they are seldom conscious how mighty an influence these feelings exercise in their own lives no less large and powerful is their part we may assure ourselves in the lives and feelings of women women are schooled into suppressing them in their most natural and most healthy direction but the internal principle remains in a different outward form an active and energetic mind if denied liberty will seek for power refused the command of itself it will assert its personality by attempting to control others to allow any human beings no existence of their own but what depends on others is giving far too high a premium on bending others to their purposes where liberty cannot be hoped for and power can power becomes the grand object of human desire those to whom others will not leave the undisturbed management of their own affairs will compensate themselves if they can by meddling for their own purposes with the affairs of others hence also women's passion for personal beauty and dress and display and all the evils that flow from it in the way of mischievous luxury and social immorality the love of power and the love of liberty are in eternal antagonism where there is least liberty the passion for power is the most ardent and unscrupulous the desire for power over others can only cease to be a depraving agency among mankind when each of them individually is able to do without it which can only be where respect for liberty in the personal concerns of each is an established principle but it is not only through the sentiment of personal dignity that the free direction and disposal of their own faculties is a source of individual happiness and to be fettered and restricted in it a source of unhappiness to human beings and not least to women there is nothing after disease indigence and guilt so fatal to the pleasurable enjoyment of life as the want of a worthy outlet for the active faculties women who have the cares of a family and while they have the cares of a family have this outlet and it generally suffices for them but what of the greatly increasing number of women who have had no opportunity of exercising the vocation which they are mocked by telling them is their proper one what of the women whose children have been lost to them by death or distance or have grown up married and formed homes of their own 
There are abundant examples of men who, after a life engrossed by business, retire with a competency to the enjoyment, as they hope, of rest, but to whom, as they are unable to acquire new interests and excitements that can replace the old, the change to a life of inactivity brings ennui, melancholy, and premature death. Yet no one thinks of the parallel case of so many worthy and devoted women who, having paid what they are told is their debt to society, have brought up a family blamelessly to manhood and womanhood, having kept a house so long as they have a house needing to be kept, are deserted by the sole occupation for which they have fitted themselves, and remain with undiminished activity but with no employment for it unless perhaps a daughter or daughter-in-law is willing to abdicate in their favor the discharge of the same functions in her young household. Surely a hard lot for the old age of those who have worthily discharged, as long as it was given to them to discharge, what the world accounts their only social duty. Of such women, and of those to whom this duty has not been committed at all, many of whom pine through life with the consciousness of thwarted vocations, and activities which are not suffered to expand, the only resources, speaking generally, are religion and charity. But their religion, though it may be one of feeling, and of ceremonial observance, cannot be a religion of action, unless in the form of charity. For charity, many of them are, by nature, admirably fitted. But to practice it usefully, or even without doing mischief, requires the education and the manifold preparation, the knowledge and the thinking powers of a skillful administrator. There are few of the administrative functions of government for which a person would not be fit who is fit to bestow charity usefully. In this, as in other cases, preeminently in that of the education of children, the duties permitted to women cannot be performed properly without their being trained for duties which, to the great loss of society, are not permitted to them. And here let me notice the singular way in which the question of women's disabilities is frequently presented to view, by those who find it easier to draw a ludicrous picture of what they do not like, than to answer the arguments for it. When it is suggested that women's executive capabilities and prudent counsels might sometimes be found valuable in the affairs of state, these lovers of fun hold up to the ridicule of the world as sitting in Parliament or in the Cabinet, girls in their teens, or young wives of two or three and twenty, transported bodily exactly as they are from the drawing-room to the House of Commons. They forget that males are not usually selected at this early age for a seat in Parliament, or for responsible political functions. Common sense would tell them that if such trusts were confided to women, it would be to such as having no special vocation for married life, or preferring other employment of their faculties, as many women even now prefer to marriage some of the few honorable occupations within their reach have spent the best years of their youth in attempting to qualify themselves for the pursuits in which they desire to engage, or, still more frequently perhaps, widows or wives of forty or fifty 
by whom the knowledge of life and faculty of government which they have acquired in their families could by the aid of appropriate studies be made available on a less contracted scale there is no country of europe in which the ablest men have not frequently experienced and keenly appreciated the value of the advice and help of clever and experienced women of the world in attainment both of private and of public objects and there are important matters of public administration to which few men are equally competent as such women among others the detailed control of expenditure but what we are now discussing is not the need which society has of the services of women in public business but the dull and hopeless life to which it so often condemns them by forbidding them to exercise the practical abilities which many of them are conscious of in a wider field than one to which some of them never was and to the others is no longer open if there is anything vitally important to the happiness of human beings it is that they should relish their habitual pursuit this requisite of an enjoyable life is very imperfectly granted or altogether denied to a large part of mankind and by its absence many a life is a failure which is provided in appearance with every requisite of success but if circumstances which society is not yet skilful enough to overcome render such failures often for the present inevitable society need not itself inflict them the injudiciousness of parents a youth's own inexperience or the absence of external opportunities for the congenial vocation and their presence for an uncongenial condemn numbers of men to pass their lives in doing one thing reluctantly and ill when there are other things which they could have done well and happily but on women this sentence is imposed by actual law and by customs equivalent to law what in unenlightened societies color race religion or in the case of a conquered country nationality are to some men sex is to all women a peremptory exclusion from almost all honorable occupations but either as such cannot be fulfilled by others or such as those others do not think worthy of their acceptance sufferings arising from causes of this nature usually meet with so little sympathy that few persons are aware of the great amount of unhappiness even now produced by the feeling of wasted life the case will be even more frequent as increased cultivation creates a greater and greater disproportion between the ideas and faculties of women and the scope which society allows to their activity when we consider the positive evil caused to the disqualified half of the human race by their disqualification first in the loss of the most inspiriting and elevating kind of personal enjoyment and next in the weariness disappointment and profound dissatisfaction with life which are so often the substitute for it one feels that among all the lessons which men require for carrying on the struggle against the inevitable imperfections of their lot on earth there is no lesson which they more need than not to add to the evils which nature inflicts by their jealous and prejudiced restrictions on one another 
their vain fears only substitute other and worse evils for those which they are idly apprehensive of while every restraint on the freedom of conduct of any of their human fellow-creatures otherwise than by making them responsible for an evil actually caused by it dries up pro tanto the principal foundation of human happiness and leaves the species less rich to an inappreciable degree in all that makes life valuable to the individual human being end of chapter four part two recording by nikki sullivan chicago end of the subjection of women by john stuart mill